Hallelujah. Father, at the mention of your Son's name, Jesus Christ, the demons shudder and tremble. The weak are laid low and the humble are exalted. At the mention of your name, the lost prepared to salvation confess and believe. At the mention of your name, Lord, the angels stand at attention to accomplish the will and purposes for which they are commissioned. At the mention of your name, the demons fear and tremble and are cast into eternal lake of fire at the appointed day of your choosing. At the mention of your name, Lord, kingdoms and kings shudder and bow. Lord, at the mention of your name and at your word, creation sprang into being. By the power of your name, it continues as you provide all of the means for its survival, your people, your creatures, and the ecosystems. And Lord, because of your name, dear Jesus, we are redeemed. Your people have experienced the covenant reunion between a holy God and sinners because of the work of Christ on Calvary. So it is this name that we extol today. It is this name that we proclaim. It is this name in which we place our trust. We declare that Jesus Christ is our portion. Father, as we turn to your scriptures, I pray that you would soften our heart and open our ears and strengthen our resolve to understand, to apply, and to confess the truth that you have de delivered to us. I pray that you would use this time, Father, to push past the weakness of our flesh, sins that easily beset, and our weak understanding and the frailty of our humanity, so that your spirit might override these things and speak to us the words of life that encourage our spirit and strengthen our commitment to live for Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. May we do so as fruit from this service today with all our might, with all our soul, with all our strength to the praise of his glorious name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a great gift and privilege it is to open the scriptures, to turn to God's holy word, and to do so with a heart of praise, of worship, thankfulness, and submission to what God has revealed therein. I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis 34 as we continue in our series, Chronicling the Life of Jacob and God Moving in spite of the sin and the frailty of his servant, his anointed covenant son has now entered Canaan and is faced with a new set of trials, among them the Hivites in a particular situation involving his daughter, the only named daughter so far as I know, Dinah. She is featured in a circumstance of tragic proportions in Genesis 34. The length of our text is a little longer today, and the purpose for that is to draw an arc from crisis to resolution. So it's going to take most of it's going to take all of chapter 34 and a bit of 35. The aim of this morning's message is to highlight the distinctions between godly and ungodly covenants or relationships. There are ungodly and godly relationships post-fall, and this passage illustrates dramatically the contrast between the two. The title of this morning's message is Facing the Hivites, which is a people group that we'll see featured in our text. Or a subtitle could be Dinah's Dishonor, the dishonor of Jacob's daughter Dinah in these circumstances. Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's scripture out of reverence as we hear his holy word proclaimed in our ears in Genesis 34 verse 1 
through 35, verse 5. Here is the word of God. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Make marriages with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Find me favor, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do the thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take our daughters to ourselves, your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. 18. Their words pleased Hamor, Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, that every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. 25. The plot thickens. We continue to read. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar, the son of Shechem, with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Sons of, sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. But when Jacob said to, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? 
Chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Verse 2, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, this is quite a heavy story indeed, is it not? There's so much going on, and the intensity of the situation cannot be overstated. The dramatic fallout of sin, the tragic circumstances and consequences, all of this plays a role in setting the stage as we have, had, as we have read in this passage today. We find the, uh, the uh, main character of uh, this account, Jacob, still frail. The frailty of Jacob continues to plague him, even in Canaan. We've seen moments, highlights in Jacob, where he displays more of a godliness and more of a resolve, and more of a conviction and consistency, and yet he is still a work in progress. It is quite clear, and this situation proves as much. And these tragic events at Shechem, Jacob faces challenges presented by pagan neighbors, wandering and lawless children, and his own moral weakness in the face of trial. Pagan neighbors, wandering and lawless children, and his own moral weakness. Jacob, the unqualified patriarch, in many ways, stumbles toward Bethel. Stumbling in more than one way, we see figuratively that he stumbles in that he does not display the conviction, the consistency, and the assertive, strong, patriarchal, godly leadership that he is called to. But there's also a picture of stumbling in another way. His hip has been placed out of joint, and since Penuel... He's been walking with a limp. This limp was to teach him that his dependency was not on himself or in himself, but as the Lord was his portion, as we studied last week from Psalm 119, then Jacob could walk in a manner worthy of his call, in a way the New Testament puts it. This was a lesson that he was still learning along the way, learning the hard way, the very hard way. These events also mark a recurring pattern among the people of God through covenant history. Think of those times through the course of the Old Testament on into the New where heaven enjoyed a measure of circumstantial victory. The Red Sea is crossed. The people gloriously defeat their enemies through the power of God's hand alone. The seas collapse upon their foes. Yet it's not very long and the defenses of their heart prove weak indeed. Think of the Exodus golden calf incident. After gloriously triumphing over their enemies and singing as much in the Red Sea, salvation. It's not long before Aaron is fashioning a golden calf and the people are worshiping gods similar to their pagan neighbors. Think of the fallout of Balaam's deception. Though he couldn't prophesy evil against the people of God, he could convince them to intermarry and become a prey to the lust of the surrounding peoples 
Think of the intermingling with the pagan gods in Nehemiah's day. You would think the people of God would learn their lesson after so many years of exile and so many cycles of judgment. Yet still, they come back and are tempted by similar uh, peoples and desires uh, on the periphery of the will of God, and they uh, become yet another example of this phenomenon. That is, having enjoyed a measure of circumstantial victory, the defenses of the heart nevertheless prove weak. Paul instructs New Testament believers, you've re, uh, re, you will recall this verse, I'm sure, from 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And those verses continue, and you can read them on your own time, but Paul cites from Leviticus, from the law, and also from Isaiah, the prophets, to reinforce his point. Paul's main idea there, his main exhortation, that we are to learn from the examples that we are studying today and through Scripture, as well as his apostolic exhortation, is to be careful with our relationships. Be careful with your covenants. They can be a real pitfall. This passage includes citations from the Law and Prophets, emphasizing that the pitfalls of Jacob and others are not unique to them, and their experiences are meant to warn and instruct us. And here's a little phrase I put together to remind myself of these, and I pass it along to you. No wall is secure. No army is invincible. No victory is final unless it is reinforced by faithful convictions of the heart. No wall is secure, no army invincible, no victory is final unless it is reinforced by faithful convictions of the heart. The predominant theme of Genesis, which is, I suggest, hope through covenant, is not without counterfeits. We witness today a counterfeit covenant. This incident in Jacob's life illustrates the abuse and corruption of covenant terms. Relational arrangements ought to be governed by the word of God in every case. And Genesis 34 provides a cautionary tale, an example to warn us of those, or for those who take covenants lightly or exploit them for personal gain. Fear of the Lord means taking covenants seriously. The tragic fallout of these events serve to remind us that the exclusive hope of the gospel, illustrated by contrast, the blessing of godly relationships and godly favor promised through the faithful and true son of Jacob, Jesus Christ, is the only way to bring redemption out of such horrific fallout. And as we look forward to the conclusion of this matter, ultimately speaking, we find the perfect example of godly covenant in the son of Jacob to come, Jesus Christ. And as we see, even in our text today, from crisis to resolution, a return to the word of God and his promises, provides hope for the covenant family in the meantime. The events of Shechem present to us the following. Just to divide our text, this narrative section into four categories. First of all, a serious situation, the context, the stage is set. The events of Shechem represent a very serious situation. Secondly, an insincere covenant is featured, verses 8 through 24. Thirdly, a reckoning. There's a reckoning in 35 or 25 verses through verse 35, 1. And finally, a revival. By the mercy and grace of God, our, this account closes with a revival and a return to the Lord in Jacob's household. Praise the Lord for his grace. 
Number one, the events of Shechem present a serious situation. Where are we? Well, we're in Shechem, so don't confuse. There's two names here. One is a fellow perhaps named you know, for the place in which he resides. And then Shechem is also the name of the city. We find this in 33 verse 18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And the translation of that is Mighty One, God of Israel. The Mighty One, the God of Israel, was the altar confession that Jacob made in this very place. But now that faith is tested. And tragically, there is a failure of this test of faith, yet there is repentance gloriously and thankfully at the end. Nevertheless, this is a serious situation. It takes place in Shechem. We're sort of connecting the dots on Jacob's exodus. Remember, for 20 years he's in, been to the north in Paddan Aram in servitude to his uncle Laban. And on the pathway, on the journey of exodus from exile in Laban, he has entered by the grace of God into the promised land, and he's been facing uh, challenging circumstances. First of all, he faces at Penuel the Lord himself. We titled this sermon, Facing God, as God meets him and reinforces his promises to him. Among them, I will be with you on the way. The gates of Canaan open for Jacob, weak and frail such as he is, and questioning in his faith such as he is, nevertheless, he is escorted by an encampment of angels. Secondly, the next test as he crosses the threshold of the promised land, he must face Esau. And again, he makes provisions and he's very frightful. And he takes great pains to protect himself to the best of his ability. Yet he learns in that case that it is God who changes his brother's heart. The spirit, as it were, has gone before Jacob and has done what his provisions could never do, has secured safe passage in spite of this enemy, his own brother that wanted to kill him 20 years ago. Now he's facing a different challenge. He's facing the Hittites. It's a serious situation. It represents a threat, and it's taking place in this place called Shechem. As we connect these dots, we find that Jacob has arrived at a prior altar location. This is something that he should have remembered and by God's intention would have grounded him in his convictions. It was, in fact, at this very place in Genesis 12, 6-7, that his grandfather, Abraham, met the Lord face to face as he entered the land. That altar presumably still stood in that place. Jacob was an altar builder as well. Altars served a purpose. They served a purpose to ground one's confession and hope and remind him of that which is more powerful than himself, especially in times when his life and livelihood are threatened, times just like this, facing the Hivites who would violate his daughter. So here we are in Shechem, but instead of visiting that altar and crying out to the Lord and desperate plea, O Lord, what should I do? We do not find Jacob doing that, but instead other things take the place of the priority of seeking the face of God. Abraham had a place set apart that represented, that marked, that commemorated the word and visitation of the Lord. It was proof that God had guided the covenant family into the promised land and would keep them in spite of their adversaries. 
This confession of faith would now be challenged, and we see where people fall accordingly. The people of God face challenges in every generation. When we're looking and analyzing things just by the circumstances, our physical eyes, and our experience, most every enemy we face appears intimidating, just in the natural. They, naturally speaking, have more power, more influence, more authority. Uh, we live in a culture, we mentioned so many times, that appears governed by ungodliness to the nth degree. We are a people who can relate in some degree as a minority seeking to glorify the Lord in hostile territory. Yet it is so important for us to return to the place of altar that is a reminder of the sufficiency of the Lord. Psalm 119, that glorious theme that we've gone over and over again, the sufficiency of the Lord in spite of all kinds of trials is a reminder that we need and that Jacob needed at this time. So here he is in Shechem. What about the characters? Well, the characters are kind of interesting. There's sort of a parallel set. On the one hand, there's a godly patriarch, Jacob and his family, and one daughter in particular, Dinah. On the other hand, there's an ungodly patriarch, also a father of influence, Hamor, and one son, Shechem. And then we have the conflict between them. But these two influential fathers and their children remind us of another theme in Genesis, one that keeps coming up time and again in the text. And it's this, since the fall, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the seed of the serpent, those who are aligned with the devil and his purposes, the unregenerate, the ungodly, the non-believer, and then there's the seed of the woman. Those are the ones who have pitched their tent in the covenant hope of the Messiah to come, who have believed the word prophesied over the servant and to all who would hear and place their hope that there would come the seed of the woman one day that would crush the serpent's head. This seed would indeed come through the very family line that was threatened by this enemy right now. And the challenge was to believe that God's purposes through Jacob's sons and his son's sons and so forth on into the future would be sufficient to give them grace to weather this storm. Nevertheless, we have these characters lined up, influential fathers and their children, the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman once again. Did Dinah realize the weight of this distinction? Probably not. What do we see? Well, in, we see trouble in verse 2 or verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. It's a red flag right there. We're not given a lot of information, but we can surmise, reading between the lines, that Dinah did not take seriously, and perhaps her family as well, the weight of this distinction. We're living as the seed of the woman in a area that is populated by the seed of the serpent. And those covenant distinctions are significant. It is un it is unlikely that she took this seriously. She seems motivated at least by a wandering curiosity. And this wandering curiosity removed her from the covering of her God-ordained family and its protection, rendering her vulnerable to the predations, to the threat of a culture violently giving over to the lust of the flesh. Again, motivated at least by a wandering curiosity Dinah finds herself out from under the covering of the God-ordained family, protection, rendering her, her covering and protection, rendering her vulnerable to the risk, to the threat, to the predations of a culture 
violently given over to the lust of the flesh. What an important principle for us to remember. Children, listen to me. I exhort you to honor your parents and to appreciate the covering that they provide. Do not let your wandering curiosity put you outside of the safety and the covering and the protection. The name of the Lord, the scriptures say, is like a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. And in your Christian home, kids, your parents and the covering of your home is that strong tower that God has provided you. It's the means that he, in his, na- and in his name, and that is the gospel, and the convictions of your parents have provided you to be safe, even in a world where there is a dangerous culture of violent sin. And we live in a culture such as this. If you take yourself out and if you wander out of the covering of God's purposes, his means of protection, it is dangerous indeed. You could become a victim of culture and you could become caught up in a horrible circumstance, tragedy such as we've seen here today. So let us embrace with wholehearted thankfulness what God has supplied for us, the covering and the safety of his name. And for those of us who are adults and parents, that means, of course, keeping our convictions and our uh, responsibilities grounded in the word of God and providing that covering having a consistent testimony of godliness and taking seriously the, uh, the covenant of God and our salvation and what the psalmist refers to in so many words as the judgments and the statutes and the promise and the word of God as we've been going through that text as well. So we have location, we have these characters, and then we have the conflict. Verse 2, When Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. He took advantage of her. She was violated. Her honor was uh, laid waste in this act, this violent act. In verse 3, And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Dinah was violated. Dishonoring, this act dishonored her, her family, and the Lord. Godly marriage. The institution that God has created from the Garden of Eden has specific covenant parameters and boundaries. Paul echoes this and exhorts the church as well. He says that marriage is to be in the Lord. It's to be initiated by covenant vows, regardless of how exactly the ceremony is laid out. Nevertheless, it must conform to God's standards of covenant faithfulness. There is that commitment shared between one man and one woman, in classic language, which is biblically sound, till death do them part. And this is a pledge of lifelong commitment, and it is a statement of honoring, honoring God's created order and his institution of family. This is his deal. This is not some biological reality. This is not some evolutionary development. This is not some cultural norm. That is marriage and family. This is not some social convention. This is not some malleable, you know, thing that we come up with arbitrarily and is up review and revision and alteration the way our world tells us. This kind of rethinking of the institutions that God has ordained is horribly dangerous. It gives way to violent lust of the flesh and a whole scale of destruct and a whole scale destruction of God's means and order. And we see an example of this here, this conflict threw this family into chaos, and it created a heartbreaking 
gut-wrenching situation. Something that only the Word of God has the power to deal with. And we see the consequences of not leaning fully on that Word of God in the short term, and it is devastating. So what are these uh, short-term solutions that were pursued? Well, that brings up point number two. The events of Shechem present an insincere covenant. Now, this is to be contrasted with other covenant relationships, even with unbelievers, that Jacob and also Isaac and Abraham had been involved in. There were uh, peaceful terms, according to God's word, where an agreement was reached with an unbelieving party, or at least a party that was brought into submission to some degree to the Lord. This happened with Abimelech a couple times in Abraham and Isaac's life. This has recently happened in Jacob's life with uh, Laban, his uncle. They came to terms. They were able to settle the dispute. They were able to come to a peaceful arrangement. But it was a, excuse me, it was a sincere covenant. It wasn't one that exploited the terms to one's advantage or broke God's law. It was covenant arrangements according to the word of God. So we contrast it to this. This is something different in our text today. This is insincere all the way around. First of all, we have the appeal of Hamor, the father of Shechem. He says, I got an idea. How about we have a covenant? In so many words, verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, A soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and a gift as I will give, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So you see, there's a grasping here. And in this suggestion, hey, we can come to terms. We can settle this dis dispute. We can fix it. Here lies the opportunity uh, that Jacob missed, by the way. When these, these ungodly men came to him and said, hey, this is our idea to resolve the situation, what would have been the right response? The word of God. Anytime there is a situation like this where sin is dramatically displayed, it's an opportunity to point to the standard of righteousness and call for repentance. Jacob failed in this opportunity to preach repentance to the ungodly. In this situation, which illustrated perfectly the horrific consequences of not following God's law, there was an opportunity to call for repentance. Jacob issues that call later, but he missed that opportunity here, so things get worse as a result. Please note that this appeal for covenant is insincere. You know, it, they're not really fully letting on Hamor and company. Um, you know, their plans or their intentions with this relationship. This becomes clear in verse 23. As they're making this pitch to their countrymen, they say, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? In other words, they say, it's to our advantage that we intermarry and intermingle with these people because then a lot of their stuff, you know, we will have access to. And whatever they meant by that could be by theft, could be by other means. Suffice it to say, they suggested that their cultures intermarry and intermingle, and that would be a way to solve this dilemma. What's the biggest problem here? Well, the biggest problem overarching this is that God had set apart a people to maintain covenant distinctions to show forth 
the gospel so that Abraham and his descendants might be a light to the unbelievers. Anytime you lay those distinctions aside and you unequally yoke with the pagan and the ungodly and gloss over sin by a short-sighted, shortcut measure, that is a bad thing indeed because it removes that distinction and that clear beacon that love for the nations was to be expressed in a clear and shining light. In Abraham's life, in chapter 12, God initiated a covenant. And he said, I'm calling you out from the nations, giving you a particular role. And through your family, which is in covenant relationship with me exclusively, I will bring a Messiah. And in this work of redemption, all the nations will be blessed. So do not compromise and do not counterfeit and do not shortcut or end run my purposes in this regard. And this is the distinction that was to be maintained. Now in chapter 15, the covenant was ratified. It was such a serious agreement, such a solemn arrangement that God swore on the destruction of himself to satisfy, to fulfill his promises and having no one higher to swear to, he swore by himself and his own name. And then in chapter 17, that covenant was signified. A sign of that set apartness was given in circumcision. That this is the sign that this is my people set apart and that through these means of redemption by a Messiah being born to the covenant line was not to be mixed with the ungodly in sinful ways. I will bring hope for every tribe every tongue, every people of the earth, even Hivites, who would repent of their sin and place their faith in that Messiah to come. So this is the big picture context. Now, the Hamar and company, they have an appeal. Let's make a covenant. Now, Jacob's sons make a proposal, and they capitalize on this opportunity in a self-serving and deceitful way. 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem, his father Hamor, deceitfully. Note there, verse 13, their answer was not genuine, it was disingenuous. It was not sincere, it was insincere. So they answered him deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing. And then they proceed to explain, because they're uncircumcised, they couldn't in good conscience enter into a relationship with them. But they say, if you circumcise all the males, then, you know, we'll have an agreement. Then we can talk. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's sons, son Shechem. Verse 19, the young man did not delay and do this thing and uh, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter, and thus this, the account continues. Well, taking advantage of this circumstance in verse 25, uh, just a whole lot of violence breaks loose as the vengeance is taken into Jacob's son's own hands. We'll cover that in just a moment. Jacob himself we note is conspicuously absent. This has happened before, hasn't it? It's like, where's Jacob here? Why isn't he giving any counsel, direction, or advice? I'm not sure how the situation unfolded, whether it was his sons who kind of elbowed him out of the way, shut up, old man, we'll take care of this, or if he just sort of slunk into the background, passively avoided asserting any leadership and guidance in this matter. Suffice it to say, his sons were literally doing the literal dirty work and Jacob is AWOL, absent without leave. In his place, so in lieu of the patriarch, exercising his prerogative and duty, his sons channel the worst of his character. Remember, Jacob was known as a schemer before God changed his heart. 
Well, like father, like son, at least in this instance, his sons are now scheming. But they take it to a whole new level. Jacob never schemed in order to murder someone, but that's exactly what his sons did. Taking matters into their own hands and violating that jurisdictional principle which God says, vengeance is mine and I delegate it particularly to those who have an office to act in in this regard. They did not take seriously God's word and they schemed deceitfully toward a purpose far surpassing Jacob's sins and leveled the whole place, taking everything and killing a whole bunch of people in the wake of their anger. The Hivites consent to this deal. They are also disingenuous in their intentions, as, as we've mentioned. They are interested in intermarrying with this family line just for self-serving purposes. Human relationships, we're reminded, again, by contrast in this section, human relationships are meant to glorify God. They're not tools of exploitation. You see, the marriage and the intermarrying that was suggested between these two peoples, these two cultures, it was suggested on the part of the Hivites as a tool to placate Hamor's son, to give him the daughter that he wanted, the daughter that he uh, defiled, And also, this relationship was exploited on the part of Jacob's sons to give them opportunity to take out vengeance. Thus, the holy holy, uh, relationship, institution, covenant of marriage, and the serious and sober reality of a covenant between two peoples was taken advantage of. It was exploited by both parties in this case And thus God was dishonored. Human relationships, all of them, are meant to glorify God. They are not to be used as tools of exploitation. So here, it strikes me. Let me give a a pause. Let me pause for a bigger picture redemptive note. It strikes me as a profound contrast in the text that the hope of marriage was leaned upon in this situation as, as a resolution to what was at hand. The hope that uh, marriage or intermarrying presented in the short term was thought to be the means, the Hevites thought, to bring uh, you know, peace between the two clans. But then the hope of this covenant, this marriage, and intermingling of the two groups was exploited by Jacob's sons to take advantage for the sake of vengeance. But ironically and gloriously, there would be hope of the union and the reunion of peoples. And this would come through a marriage of a different type in the future. Think of the bridegroom and bride relationship of all of us saints from every walk and ethnic background in every corner of the earth. Who are we? We are spoken of as the bride of Christ. And who is our bridegroom but Jesus? Now, why is our relationship to the Lord spoken of in these terms? Because it's a covenant bond of glorious, holy, and reverent proportions. And so, ironically, in the future, it would be a marriage of sorts that would hold out hope to unify peoples who are separated by sin and by feuds of this degree. But there were no shortcuts and no substitutes. Uh, A marriage short of that which God has instituted through salvation would just be a counterfeit. It would be a covenant 
to hope to bring peace and to smooth things over in this case. But the real hope would come in the future. And it's interesting, too, that even mandatory circumcision would not be the way that a Gentile could become a Jew, so to speak, or to be in the covenant through favor. No, this would be a heart change. God would circumcise the heart. God would change people from the inside. And once they all, we all, with unified voice as the people of God, confess Jesus as our Lord and bridegroom, so to speak, then and only then are all nations unified and reconciled before, as we see in the future, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. This insincere covenant illustrates by contrast the true hope of reconciliation. Well, there is a reckoning for what's going down, and it's not pretty. Verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore, so taking advantage of them, vulnerable, after this painful procedure, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city, in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, so here's a reckoning. And this comes up later with regard to these two men's inheritance, lack thereof, due to their great transgression. Jacob says, you have brought, me, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And they said, should we treat our sister? Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So you see what Jacob is concerned is that the word of this would get out. Yeah, they might have devastated the Hivites, but there's other people who will not take too kindly to this. And now Jacob is right back in that distress that he had uh, felt so profoundly before. Vigilante justice on the part of Jacob's sons was a foretelling of future actions. And we see this in, in uh, some chapters in the future with respect to Joseph. In other words, this wouldn't be the last time that Jacob's sons take matters into their own hands to great and horrific consequence. Their deceptive ways, their deceptive ways catch up with them in due course, there is a day of reckoning. They thought they could take reckoning into their own hands, but they were sowing seeds of their own reckoning in the future. But there is glorious promise of redemption. As we move through the book of Genesis, we will see, Lord willing, in the story of Joseph, that in him is a picture of the redemptive power of Christ. And though these brothers conspired to compromise and counterfeit to their own advantage, the covenant God led them in his steadfast love, in his kindness and his mercy to a place of acknowledging their sin and finally bowing before his will, his sovereignty and purposes. But in the meantime, there was quite the slaughter, quite the plunder and quite the mess. Jacob is in distress. He's once again concerned for his personal safety. And, and notice this, Jacob's concerned for his personal safety and his sons are concerned that he take lightly the fact that their sister, his daughter, was treated like a prostitute. Jacob's primary priority is personal safety. His son's priority is vengeance. What is God's concern? Righteousness. 
Jacob was in, uh, wrestling. He was a captive in this moment to the sin of self-centeredness. His sons were reveling in the sin of self-appointed vengeance. And what was lost here was a clear testimony of the Word of God. I think we can see now why the psalmist says in 119 in 256 ways as he, or as he adds synonym to synonym of the glorious power and beauty of the word and the law and the statutes and the promises of God, why he takes such great painstaking care in that beautiful poem to illustrate that God's word is sufficient. Because sometimes in life you're faced with trials that are very distressing, extremely heavy. There's no way that you can lift them. There's no way that you can negotiate them. There's no counselor, a therapist, mere therapist or counselor outside of those who would communicate to you the word and rules of God who can guide you through a circumstance as deep and dark as this. And now Jacob feels it even more. This is his distress. But now we move from this crisis to resolution as we close our message. Let us consider a revival that breaks out in Jacob's home. Oh, the mercy and the grace of God. To see this situation turn so quickly and to see a resolution come that exalts the Lord and his gospel is a work that only God could accomplish. And it's obvious in our text. 35.1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the Lord who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This is the Lord's direction. And what three words you could mark down. Arise, dwell, and worship. So move from this situation and posture that you have assumed. That is, put behind you your distress and your self-centered concern. And then move, dwell in the place where the covenant is secure and assured. And that's what Bethel represented. We don't have time to go over it again, but in Genesis 28, this is the place where heaven touched earth and angels were seen in Jacob's glorious dream, ascending and descending upon him, assuring him that God and God alone can bridge the gap between our sin and his holiness. And in his covenant, in his promises, and in his gospel is hope for reconciliation of a sinner and a holy God. And God is directing him back to that place. Arise, dwell, and worship in the place of supernatural covenant revelation. When we are low, when we are in distress, when we are weary, when we are doubting, when our faith is small, the call comes to us just as it did to Jacob. Arise, dwell, and worship. Turn to the Lord and to his word. It's not so much these days a geographic place like it once was in Bethel or the temple that would be built in Zion. But for us, it is in Christ. The fulfillment of that temple reality and the place of God dwelling with earth and the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is a reality now inside of us. And it's reassured to us in his holy word. And so when we are in a situation similar in any sense to what Jacob feels, we are to arise, to move out of our distress and despair and to dwell upon God's holy word and in faith to set our face the course of our actions, and as the psalmist directed us last week, to set our feet towards the testimonies of the Lord in the place of supernatural covenant revelation, to worship here, yea, indeed, even in this place, with the people of God. Jacob takes this seriously. Something happens in his soul. 
He is awakened from the stupor of his sin. He snaps out of it, and this is what he says in 35.2. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Purify yourself, change your garments, throw away your idols. Why? They're going to Bethel. Kids, what does Bethel mean? Does anyone remember? Shout it out if you remember. What does Bethel mean? Ooh, yeah, that's a, derivative, that's a similar name. Um, I'll give you a hint. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Bethel means the house of what? House of God, that is correct. So this was a foreshadowing of temple worship, by the way. We put aside your idols, you change your clothes, you you purify yourself, you prepare to meet the Lord in his house, in the place of his dwelling. This is a picture of what Christ would accomplish in his blood. What does Christ do by the cleansing power of his sacrifice, his blood? He gives us his robes of righteousness. When we confess and repent of our sin, when we trust that his righteousness is our good standing before the Father, we put aside our idols and our stained clothing, as it were, and we step into the presence of God boldly before the throne of grace, receiving his welcome because Jesus has paved the way for us. And this is the picture here. Put aside your idols. What gave his sons this idea and this scheme? Well, I suggest it probably was the idols that they served. The pagan concept attached to the teraphim, which is this Hebrew word for household gods. And we know that Jacob's family had a problem with this. Even Rachel herself stole a bunch of them from Laban and put them under her saddle. God demonstrated his sovereignty over them. The gods couldn't even show themselves to Laban. They couldn't even present themselves. They were there underneath the menstruating women, desecrated in that act. And now God is further rooting out gods, household gods, idols in Jacob's household, And he's calling this repentance from the voice of his once distressed, once weak, once AWOL patriarch leader. And so Jacob preaches to his family, put away the foreign gods that are with you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the Lord, to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob is recalling in this moment of repentance and faith the Emmanuel promise. Kids, one more trivia question. What does Emmanuel mean? God God with us? Amen. God with us. That was the promise. God will be with you. The, uh, The Lord had stressed to Jacob over and again. And Jacob now confesses the truth. He has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob has seen him in dreams. He has seen him preserving him in the face of other challenges. His eyes have been opened to the encampment of the hosts of heaven that accompany him on his journey. He has no good reason to doubt. Now he confesses this and proclaims it to his family and says, Household, let us go to the place of God's self-revelation. Let us glorify him. Let us repent and let us turn to him. This is, and let us prepare in so doing to enter the house of God. And thus Jacob calls, he preaches the gospel, and he encouraged his whole household to repent, and so they do. So they gave to Jacob, here's the response, verse 4, all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Verse 5, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Final point. 
Now, I told you that the reason we covered so much territory here is because we were to kind of conclude this narrative portion. I wanted to go from crisis to resolution. And here seems the natural place of resolution. So what is Jacob's distress and concern? That he has been made a stench to his enemies by the short-sighted vengeance and the scorched earth rampage that his sons went on. And now he's thinking, I'll never have peace in the land. Well, he comes to believe in faith that God will accompany him on the way and turns his face to Bethel. And when he does, the Lord confirms his word with signs following. And so what does the Lord do? He brings a terror upon the cities that are around him. And none of them dare lift a finger to challenge Jacob. This is a foreshadowing of Jericho, by the way. The people of God would enter the promised land. They'd be surrounded by formidable enemies again, and some would cower in fear. But eventually God would raise up a Joshua, like he raised up Jacob in this instance, to call the people's attention to the house and promises of God and to align their conviction with the promises of the Holy One that has been at accompanying them now for 40 years along the way. Conflating the two stories, we see in our passage that the terror that visited the cities was not due to the raid of Jacob's sons. No, the raid of Jacob's sons would incite the enemies, Jacob knew this, to make war with Jacob. Rather, it was the sovereign act of God. Just like God struck fear in the hearts of those who heard about his exploits, parting the Red Sea and defeating Pharaoh on account of his people, on behalf of his people. So now, in a similar way, Jacob's enemies have been shuddering in their boots and reduced to terrified non-combatants. Jacob's impulsive, angry sons were not a reliable source, resource for strength and protection in the land. They were, in fact, they, in fact, made Jacob a stench in the eyes of his neighbors. 3430. Meanwhile, the Lord who promised to escort the covenant sons safely to the promised land continues to fulfill his Emmanuel promise, I will be with you, to Jacob, confirming his word by terrifying the surrounding cities. Jacob was living out promises made to his grandfather Abraham in spite of the brash behavior of his sons. Genesis 22:17. you will possess the gates. Your children, your offspring will possess the gates of your enemies. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. There is a revival in Jacob's household and there is a confirmation of the Lord's promise, his covenant and his word. And it manifests itself in striking terror in the heart of Jacob's enemies. And what his family now has the opportunity to learn. So we don't have to resort to our own resources to defend and protect ourselves. We need not compromise the covenant in our fear or in our vengeance, but we can turn to the God who has ordained even a righteous means through his system of justice to deal with crimes worthy of capital uh, judgment as we will soon see in God's law that this crime of rape is guilty of and so forth, God's word is sufficient. We don't need to take matters into our own hands by cowering in fear or taking matters into our own hands by taking upon ourselves the burden of vengeance. The, the calling is to submit to the Lord, to arise and to dwell and to worship in the place of his covenant revelation. And for us, that's holding closely your relationship with the Lord 
and taking all the means that He supplies to be reminded of the assurance of His promises. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the strength and the power of Your Word that brings convictions to the worst of sinners, that changes the hardest of hearts, that subdues the worst of our enemies. We thank You, Lord, that the exercise of Your powers manifests in Your Word to exhort, to convict, to equip, to strengthen Your church. I pray as we look to your power, Lord, through these accounts, that you would strengthen us to stand in a day when our faith is challenged. As we face the Hivites, so to speak, of our hour, let us do so, Lord, with the assurance and the security of Bethel. Lord, remind us that that's the place to start, Lord, to go to Bethel, the place, your house, and to seek your face, to go to your word, to go to fellowship with your saints, to go to prayer before your throne, and from there proceed according to your covenant, your means, and your glorious uh, truth revealed in your holy scriptures. Give us strength to proclaim this to our own souls and to testify to the lost. As a result of this service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.